I think that this is Dana's first time doing pastoral prayer, and I thought it was fit to cause my car alarm to go off in the middle of that. <laughs> Apologies, Dana. Let me invite you to stand to your feet as we open up God's Word this morning. We want to look at Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4. Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4. Listen closely to the word of our God. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Pray with me one more time. Father, the psalmist rejoiced in your word as one who has found great treasure. Pray, Father, that we would imitate him this morning. And we would be as ones who sit in front of your word, who stand in front of your word to listen. We would be as ones to, to know ourselves being addressed by our great God who is also our Father. The one who sent your Son to die and to rise for us. So Father, as we hear your word preached this morning, would you aid us with your precious Holy Spirit? your powerful spirit who's able to minister to every heart in this room in ways that they need to be ministered to. To open up our eyes to behold the glory of Christ. And when we see glory, Father, we treasure it and will we be transformed by it. Call, Father, by your spirit to your son. Encourage, exhort, magnify. Come meet us in the preaching of your word. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Let me ask you a question this morning. When was the last time that you had a moment of uncertainty? Do you remember what that felt like? You might have been uncertain about your garage door. Did you leave it open or did you close it? You may not be sure about a conversation that you need to have with a friend who is walking away from Jesus. Will she listen or will she get offended? You're happy that it's Christmas break for all of my students in here, but you aren't certain how you did during finals week. Or you're not certain whether or not you should change your career or just stay the course. Or how do you handle this rambunctious three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old? Amen. I know I was going to get one on that one. Sometimes you just aren't sure. One person has described this felt experience at its height as being demented by uncertainty. What uncertainty is your soul wrestling with this morning, even now while you are listening to God's word? And what anxiety is waiting for you when you get home? What about the uncertainty of faith? 
a book that is being used right now to unpack our cultural moment, describes the age that we live in as one in which faith does not come easily. A striking line in this book goes like this. Believers are beset with doubts. And doubters, every once in a while, are tempted by belief. Concerning believers in, in this age, faith could be fraught and confession, theological confession, is haunted by an inescapable sense of contestability. Did you hear that? Inescapable sense of contestability. In other words, the age that we find ourselves living in is one in which nothing is easy about faith due to the unavoidable challenge of competing options, especially the current popular option of not believing in God at all. In the face of an abundant amount of options, a believer's faith can become fragile or it can become uncertain. And I know you know what this feels like because we all know what this uncertainty feels like from, of all places, the ice cream aisle in the grocery store. There's so many options. So many choices that you find yourself lost in the abyss of all of the options staring at that window for like 15 minutes. This is an age that is haunted by doubt and uncertainty due to how many choices are available to us. Just like your car ride is probably haunted by doubt of whether or not you should have gotten chocolate chip mint or cookies and cream. Theophilus, who we just read about, he might have fit well in our current age as one who wrestled with uncertainty. While he knew the gospel, he was a minority Gentile believer in the majority context of a Jewish story. His uncertainty could have been betrayed by questions like this. Are you sure? Are you positive it was God's plan to include Gentiles, non-Jewish people in his kingdom family? You sure about that? Or what about this question? Why is it that the original recipients of the gospel, the Jews, why is it that they are so vehemently against the gospel and rejected in this gospel, in, in Luke's account? Theophilus might have been thinking, did I believe in the right thing? Maybe persecution caused Theophilus to wonder if he was in the right place or not. We don't have to go far to see Luke's aim in writing his two-volume work to Theophilus. We just read it. Look again in verse number four. Luke wrote so that Theophilus might have a certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. Luke's goal was to write in such a way that Theophilus would be convinced of what he had learned about Jesus. Be assured, most excellent Theophilus, and let your heart rest on the firm ground of certainty. This is Luke's goal here. The question is, well, how does Luke accomplish this? Luke 1 through 4 tells us that he did his homework. The load-bearing wall of certainty was constructed by an extensive and a close investigation of the sources. In other words, Luke laid out his case for Theophilus by taking his place in line with many people who also confirm the events that have been fulfilled among them by God. In various math classes that I've been in over the years, it wasn't enough for the teacher to see my answers. It was important also that I had to show my work. 
how I got to the answer. Luke's two-volume story of Jesus shows his work. It shows how he got to the answer of who Jesus is and how God had made Jesus both Lord and both Christ, of both Jew and also of Gentile. He wanted to help Theophilus see that the, the one who our eyes are cast upon during this Advent season, the one who we are seeking to see clearly, this Jesus is a firm ground of certainty that Theophilus ought to stand on and I'm happy to tell you this morning, so should we. This is what Advent season is for, right? Advent season is meant to see Jesus more clearly as we look back to his first coming and as we look forward to his second coming. This is one of the many reasons why the four Gospels are important for our continual reflection, our continual learning, our continual digging into they show us this same Jesus from four different angles. They give us, as Jonathan told us two weeks ago, they give us a complimentary picture of this gorgeous Christ that we have gathered to worship this morning. Pastor Jason Meyer in his new book on discouragement, which, by the way, at times can be fueled by uncertainty, he wrote that the Christian life is a fight for sight. That's good right there. It's good to know that you're in a fight if you're a Christian in here. And that main fight that we're into is a fight to see, a fight for sight. So what have we seen so far as we've traveled through the Gospels? Jesus, through Matthew's eyes, is the great teacher and hope of Israel in the world. Pastor Tove showed us last week that Jesus, through Mark's eyes, is the sovereign, suffering Son of God. Well, who is Jesus through Luke's eyes? Luke wants us to see through his gospel and through, his, and through Acts that Jesus is the enthroned Savior of the world. Somebody say Savior. He's the enthroned Savior of the world. Now, if your heart is like my heart, oh, how we need to fight to see this about Jesus daily. And sometimes, depending on the day, hourly, but not just seeing, but treasuring and following Jesus as the enthroned Savior of the world. Treasuring and following Jesus as the enthroned Savior of the world has real-time application for us, especially in this season of Advent that points us not only backwards, but also calls us to look forward. Luke did Theophilus a solid in his fight for sight, and he's done us one also as we are ones who are waiting for the return of this enthroned Savior of the world. Now, Luke's two-volume work to Theophilus functions as one single book. Part one, what we're discussing today, is his gospel, and part two is his sequel, and that's called the book of Acts. It is said that sequels don't live up to their original. Luke, and, Luke Acts shatters that perception. What we have on our hands is, is a literary, literary artistry that can be seen in both the structure of both of his works. My wife is probably rolling her eyes on the inside when I'm talking about structure. Structure of this gospel. In the structure of this gospel, we see, in the structure of his two-volume work, we see a literary masterpiece. How Luke organized his gospel is reflected by how he organized Acts to bring his story to Jesus to full circle. 
This can be seen through a literary device called a chiasm. I know y'all are like a what? A chiasm. Somebody say chiasm. A chiasm is, what a, is when an author creatively uses symmetry to communicate. It's what I want you to have in your mind's eye or even write it down if you're taking notes. Write down the letter X on a piece of paper or think about the letter X in your mind. Now I want you to just focus on the left side of that X. In a chiasm, words, themes, phrases, parts of a story, they're laid out in a particular way and then they are repeated in a similar but opposite way. More often than not, in a chiasm, that point right in the middle is the one that draws our attention. It's the one that the author wants to emphasize as central. Sometimes it could be the turning point to a story. Now, I heard through the grapevine that Star Wars comes out this Thursday. <laughs> not that I care about that at all, but amen. But for those who might be interested in it, here's an interesting discussion for you. <laughs> Consider Star Wars episodes one through six as a chiasm. Okay? Can you throw that slide on the board for me real quick? Consider this for your reflection for a second. So again, a chiasm has points of correspondence. So if this is correct about Star Wars, the Phantom Menace corresponds with Return to the Jedi at the bottom. The Attack of the Clones corresponds to Empire Strikes Back. And right in the middle, Revenge of the Sith corresponds to A New Hope, which means, if this is correct, that Revenge of the Sith and the New Hope are the crucial midpoint in the story where it reverses and it brings the story back to full circle. Go ahead and think about it. Let, let me, not that I care, but go ahead and think about it and, and let, let me know. Go to the next slide for me. Let's think about it when it comes down to Luke. It might be a little hard for you to see, but you can see the structure of an X. And notice how they mirror one another how Luke's gospel is going to be told in such a way that it's reflected in opposite in Acts. That brings the story to full completion. Jesus, the Savior, is born in the context of Roman rule. This is important because this is talking about how historical and also how universal the act of Jesus coming in is. Jesus, the Savior, acts and teaches in Galilee. Jesus the Savior acts and teaches in Samaria and Judea. Jesus the Savior acts and teaches in Jerusalem. This is all the Gospel of Luke. Now notice the midpoint. Jesus the Savior dies. He rises from the dead. He ascends to his heavenly throne, and he pours out his spirit on his church. This is the turning point, not only a loose gospel. How many of y'all know this is the turning point of history? There is no greater event in all of history than the fact that Jesus came, died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is right now sitting on the throne of God and has right now poured out his spirit on the church. This is the center point of all things. But notice how Luke now finishes his two-volume work. He reverses it. Now that Jesus Christ is ascending, he is sitting on the throne as the risen Lord. Now that the Spirit has been poured out into the church, notice how the church now mirrors the actions of Christ. The Savior's church 
acts and teaches in Jerusalem. The Savior's church acts and teaches in Judea and Samaria. And the Savior's church acts and teaches in the Gentile world. The Savior's kingdom extends to the heart of the Roman Empire. And by God's grace, the Savior's kingdom has extended even here to the heart of Minneapolis. Test it. Go back and read Luke and Acts and see if you see that pattern and marvel at the artistry that Luke put together for us to see the beauty of this story, specifically seen with Christ at the center in his person, his work, his ministry, and his ascension. I want us to, you can go ahead and take that slide down, thank you. Let's zoom in on the word Savior. If I had to give you a central verse for Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2 verse number 11 is a worthy candidate. We just heard it read during the Advent reading. Let me recall the scene once again to you. There were shepherds out there in the field minding their own business as they watched over their flock. Out of nowhere, seemingly, an angel of the Lord in the glory of God blazed all around them and swallowed up the night. What was the shepherd's reaction? Great fear, Luke tells us. The angel alleviated their great fear with good news of great joy. How many know that's a real good remedy to fear? Good news of joy, right? This is what the angel said to the shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If I can bring in Matthew for a second. Matthew would help us, fill us out to help us understand what is this Christ, what is Jesus here to save us from. Matthew says he will save his people from their sins. One of the many reasons why this is good news is that it communicated powerfully the glory of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is a mighty weapon that slays uncertainty, right? From cover to cover, the scriptures tell the story of a God who does what he says he will do. He repeatedly overcomes seemingly unsurmountable obstacles and odds to show himself faithful to his promises. This is emphatically seen right in the birth of Christ and the fact that he even overcame a virgin womb to bring his son into the world. The certainty of God's faithfulness to his past promise Certainty that he has done it, he's done it as he said he was going to do it, that fuels our certainty in God's faithfulness to his future promises. In Acts 13, Luke connects God's faithfulness with Jesus in in one of Paul's sermons. In it, Paul described God at work in Israel's salvation story. Paul gave a a quick recap as he made his way to King David, but then he talks about David's offspring, and in Acts 13, the story slows down dramatically. He says this of David's offspring. Of this man's offspring, David, God had brought to Israel a Savior Jesus as promised. This story of salvation that started in Genesis 3 with the fall of humanity due to sin, this story has been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. And Luke's first gospel, the first volume, his gospel, declares that the Savior has arrived and his name is Jesus. If Luke 2 verse number 11 is a central verse in this gospel, let me share with you another worthy candidate that tells us what the Savior came to do or what the Savior will do. 
Luke 19, verse number 10. Make note of it and check it out when you get home. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he came to do. To seek and to save the lost. How does that land on your soul this morning, Jubilee? During this Advent season, how does that, how does that affect your heart? What does that do for you in here? To hear that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. I think that to the degree that we know our lostness will be to the degree that we understand that our rescue is sweet. Earlier this year, a lady was lost in a Hawaiian forest for 17 days. When she was finally found, she had a broken leg, sunburn, scrapes, and a torn meniscus. To add insult to injury, she lost her shoes in a flash flood. When she realized that she was finally found, she broke down and bawled, and this is what she said. She says, I am forever indebted and overwhelmed by the amount of people that came to help me. She says, it was pretty miraculous. How much more so by the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost? Amen? How much more so? One unique aspect of Luke's gospel is not only the depiction of Christ as the Savior of Israel, but gloriously the universal Savior. Jesus is no tribal deity who is only the Savior of Israel. Notice that and if that was the case, Jesus is too great to be such a small Savior if he was just the Savior of Israel. Luke shows him to be the savior of the world who is available for people everywhere. Now, by saying universal, I'm not talking about universalism. Universalism is the belief that everybody everywhere will be saved. This flies in the face of Scripture. When I use the word universal, what I mean, what the Scriptures mean, is that Jesus not only saves Jews who trust in him, but people from every tribe, tongue, people and language who trust in him. In other words, there is no distinction between Jews and non-Jews for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone, anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to listen to Simon's test, Simeon's testimony of Jesus in Luke 2. Simeon was promised that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. One day, the Spirit moved on him to come into the temple, and it happened to be the same day that baby Jesus was there. Simeon took up baby Jesus up in his arms and blessed God, and this is what he said. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you were prepared in the presence of all peoples. Listen for this. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, and for glory to your people Israel. What does this light reveal to the Gentiles? Once again, if you're unfamiliar with that term, this is anybody that's not of Jewish heritage. I will be considered a Gentile. What is this light supposed to reveal to those who are Gentiles? It reveals that Jesus saves Gentiles too. That those who are not Jewish, 
they can get in on this salvation of Christ also. It said, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. At times, my heart needs to be reminded of how stunning that is because I don't deserve salvation and doubly don't deserve it as a Gentile. Ephesians 2 gives us a bleak picture for those of us who are not part of the Jewish heritage. A bleak picture of having no hope in the world. Having no part with the covenants of God. Not coming from the people where Christ come from. But oh, thank God in Ephesians, you have Ephesians 2 verse 5, I believe. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. That's a different story. Luke gives us even more places in his gospel that shows off Jesus as our universal Savior. Now, all four gospels record the words of John the Baptist, but Luke extends John the Baptist's words like no other gospel. Consider Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, the voice, this is John the Baptist talking, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And here it is, all flesh, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. There's two other places where Luke gives us this understanding of Christ, not only of, as a Savior, but of a universal Savior. We find it in, in Luke's unique use of genealogy. Jonathan walked us through genealogy, genealogy a couple of weeks ago. Uh, chapter 3 in, in Luke ends with this genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, three of the four Gospels include this genealogy and tell us something about Christ, about Jesus. But Luke is the only one that tells us that Jesus descended from the son of Adam. Well, he descended from Adam. What are we to make about that? Why does it matter that Jesus can be traced all the way back to Adam? Well, since all humanity came from Adam, Luke wants to show Jesus' intricate connection, not only to Israel through David and Abraham, but to all of humanity through Adam. He's not just Israel's Messiah. He is the Savior of all humanity. I could step away from Luke for a moment and bring in the author of Hebrews. We see a beautiful depiction of what this means. Listen to these, these beautifully striking words. Since therefore the children, humans, us, since we share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself partook of these same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through the fear of death were subject to lifetime slavery. Jesus Christ became one of us so that he could save us. Let me show you one other place here where we see this universal description of God, of Jesus as Savior. Luke 24, last chapter in Luke. In Luke 24, when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, he opened up their minds to make sense of what just happened and what will be happening for them in the future. And it says this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus is it written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, 
beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I want you to think again, one more time, about why we as a church observe and celebrate Advent. In the busyness of the commercial Christmas season that continually strips away and strips away any remnant of the real reason for this season, Advent calls us to slow down and, as one person put it, to prime our hearts to treasure Christ. Advent is given to us to be freshly reminded of the one who came, and through Luke's eyes, specifically the one who came as a universal Savior. Luke's gospel is also known as the gospel of the outcast because it highlights who is this unusual savior a savior of. Luke 4, 18 through 19 says the spirit, this is of Christ speaking, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable or the year of the Lord's favor. So to my brothers and to my sisters in Christ, how should we respond in this season of Advent? How should, once again, this affect our heart? What should this do on the inside of us? While Luke's gospel, as you read it, it gives us glimpses of Gentiles' responses to Jesus The story has to move to Acts in order to see the Gentiles' response to Jesus as their universal Savior. Let me give you one more example from Acts 13. Paul had an opportunity in Acts 13 to preach the word of the Lord to an entire city, the entire city of Antioch. Certain Jews of that city rose up, and in opposition to Paul's message, they did so because they were jealous. Paul noted their rejection of the gospel. He turned to the Gentiles with the word of salvation. And when he did that, listen to what happened next when the Gentiles heard that they too can get in on this gospel good message. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Did you hear that? When the Gentiles heard that they can get in also, The proper response that came from their mouth was a rejoicing and a glorifying of God for his word. Brothers and sisters, let us not miss out on this opportunity that Advent affords to us. As we look back to the birth of Jesus and see in his birth our salvation, let us also rejoice and let us also glorify the word of the Lord that saves all both Jews and Gentiles, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Romans 15, 8 through 13 is a great passage that illustrates what we're to do. It says things like this, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles, again. Praise the Lord, all of you Gentiles. And again, speak excellency of the one who has called you also into the kingdom. Would we be this type of people? Whatever state you walk into here with this morning, wherever your heart is this morning, oh, would it be aflamed as you consider the one whom you're trusting in as the one who is your universal Savior. The right response is to fight to see and to fight to rejoice in that. To friends who are, who are not Christians in here, what does Luke's gospel say to you? 
Well, let me too, let me encourage you in your free time to read this gospel alongside of Acts. And I want you to note two groups of people. You will see those who believe in Jesus and become Christians. And then you will see those who reject Christ. See that you don't reject the universal Savior that extends to you today the forgiveness of your sins. Luke tells us in Acts that there is no salvation found in any other name that's been given among men whereby we must be saved. If you are in here and you're not in Christ, friend, we are so glad that you are here today because we know you are not here by accident. We know that you are not here by chance just to hear about this Savior, this universal one who we trust in and in love. So I encourage you to talk to someone. Talk to the person who brought you in here today. Or if you came by yourself, don't leave before you talk to someone about what it means to repent and believe in Jesus. Recently on the Gospel Coalition's website, uh, a lost screw tape letter showed up. If you aren't familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, it records a bunch of letters by a senior, a senior demon to his nephew that provides pointers to undermine the faith of an unbeliever. This is how the letter starts off. I received your latest letter in which you expressed a number of fears over your patient celebration of those seasons of the year that Christians call Advent and Christmas, and to which our Father below only refers to usually in disgust as the invasion. I must admit, Wormwood, I could not help but laugh at how fearful you seem at this prospect. Not that, there, not that, not that these particular seasons shouldn't strike fear in, in every young fiend like yourself when rightfully understood, but therein lies our advantage when it comes to so many Christians. There is so much they misunderstand or never consider at all. Devil forbid they ever grasp the real implications of these seasons. Screwtape goes and offers three different suggestions to Wormwood. Let me give you the third one, the third suggestion. Try keeping the enemy's story, what we call the bad news, limited to the invasion. It's bad enough that your patient thinks of this at all, but realize it could be worse. So if you foolishly allow him to focus his attention on the invasion, then at least be sure to let the story go no further in his mind. All those bipeds the enemy has created seem to love babies. So make him think the bad news is nothing more than a story about a baby. Something cute and sweet, but not serious and significant. Find a way to keep the story in Bethlehem. You can even let him keep his manger scenes with all of his, his animals present. Just let it go no further. Make sure he keeps thinking of the enemy only as a child. Don't let him think about the enemy as a man or what he did to some of our fiendish friends or how he humiliated all of hell when he rose again. You can see the manger in your patient's thinking so long as you divorce it from the cross in the empty tomb. But once he begins to recognize there's more to the story of the bad news than just the invasion, especially if he thinks about the great defeat, then he will turn in gratitude to the enemy. And I sincerely hope for your sake especially 
this does not happen. Advent is given to us to undermine Screwtape's advice. Remember that Advent points us not only backwards, but Advent also points us forwards. Uniquely among all of the Gospels, Luke tells us about Jesus' ascension. And as the saying goes, what goes up must come down. Advent reminds us that we are a people who are looking forward to the return of Christ. We look back to the one who came, and we look forward to the one who is coming. And in closing, I want you to listen how Luke's gospel uniquely tells us what to do in light of that. What should we do now? What is Luke's gospel telling us to do now as those who are waiting? Consider Luke 12, 35 to 40. Jesus tells this parable. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have, you recline, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, Blessed are those servants. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Advent reminds us to not fall asleep in the deadly poppy field of this world. Advent reminds us to stay awake as we wait for our universal Savior to come back. Jubilee, I'm glad to tell you that we are one day closer. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, the one whom you have sent to be our universal Savior is Jesus Christ the Lord. And we exalt in him today. and Magnify him by your mercy and by your grace. Would you help us to continue to see him clearly? And help us to continue to proclaim him boldly. And oh, would he be magnified in our community. We give you glory and honor. May your word bear forth much fruit as we think about it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.